Hi, good morning. This is MG. I'm Elizabeth Pudwell, and we are Sober Sisters Talk. Welcome. Good morning. So we are off-site today, and you guys don't even know what that means. Usually we're in either my living room or (laughs) MG's living room. So, uh, yeah, we are portable. We record this on a phone, and um, we are off-site today. But before I introduce our... we We have a guest. Yay. <laughs> but before I introduce our guest, I just want to remind you that um, MG and I, that Sober Sisters Talk is about bringing our recovery out of the meetings, out of the, the organized talk with a sponsor into the world. We just want to show you guys, our listeners, you know, we want to answer your questions. We want to deal with real life situations that you deal with out in the world and not necessarily in a meeting. It's so easy to stay sober in a meeting, right? Right. And you know, what I feel is that I'm no expert. The only thing I know is how to stay sober for me. And I'm just going to share my experience, strength, and hope. And if you can get anything out of that that's going to help you, great. But I can't tell you how to be sober. All I can do is tell you all the things that I've done. And one of the things that I did that was so important for me in my recovery was to get a good therapist. And this man was fantastic. Unfortunately, he's passed away But the time that I spent with Patrick was absolutely essential to my mental health, to my recovery, and to my happiness. So, if you can introduce our guest for today. Well, and I do want to piggyback on that because I, um, my therapist actually died when I turned 50, on my 50th birthday. And um, she was, I always tell people, Iris loved me to health. Um, you know, it's just not, she didn't nurse me back to health. She loved me back to health. And, um, you know, I am a huge proponent of getting therapy. There are a bunch of different schools of thought around that. But today we have our, my very good friend and, um, Ava Profata. I'm going to introduce, um, give you, I'm going to read her little, um, alphabet next to her name and I'm going to ask her each one what she is before she begins talking. So her name is Ava Profata, LCSWS. So what's that mean? So it's Licensed Clinical Social Worker, and the S means that I can supervise those individuals who are LMSW, or Licensed, licensed Master's Social Worker, to become a Licensed Clinical Social Worker. So okay. I supervise those who are in that process. Oh, so all right. did you get a so master's degree? I did. And you're, and you're like a teacher as well then, a trainer. Supervisor. Yeah. yeah. yeah for the state. Okay. <clears throat> it's a credential that comes from the state. So okay. there's a comma and then another set of alphabet alphabet letters. <laughs> um, a CSAT, S-C-A-T, and also an S. Mm-hmm. That's a certified uh sex addiction therapist and the S means that I can uh, supervise those people who are trying to get their full licensure or their full credential in certified sex addiction therapist uh, from uh, the International Institute of uh, Trauma and Addiction Professionals that is owned and operated by uh, Dr. Patrick Carnes and his daughter, Dr. Stephanie Carnes. Wow, okay. And the last set of letters is the C-MAT, C-M-A-T, and also an S following that. So that stands for Certified Multiple Addictions Therapist, and I can supervise those who are working toward their C-MAT certification as well. Okay, so we're in the right spot, you know, what can I say, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And I know that, you know, it is scary to approach therapy, especially when you're in the throes of an addiction and trying to get sober, but even in long-term sobriety, you know, it, it's sort of a, there's, you know, like I said, I'm in some 12-step meetings, it's like, oh, you should never do that. In some 12-step meetings, it's like, go, 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 go get one. So just want to, you know, talk, tell us a little bit how you became a therapist maybe, and then what your, what your thought is about mixing therapy with uh, some 12-step work. So when you were just sharing that, a thought came to my mind the first time that I was going to try to see a therapist um, after I got sober back in 89 from first alcohol and drugs and then later I came into the S programs or the sex and love addiction programs. So my therapist, her name was Ann, she was in the same building that I worked at. So I was the director of the respiratory department and she had an office on one of the upper floors and so I would look around me as I was walking down the hall to see who saw me go into her office. (laughs) I was terrified about somebody seeing me uh, getting some therapy 
and more from uh, your professional side from the professional side yeah and then as I became much more comfortable with being sober and really enjoyed it and wanted to uh, shout it to the world because it helped me so much and I was not a therapist at the time so I was terrified of therapist and therapy so but you know before you go on there is a stigma still absolutely you know and I find it a lot more common among men but there is a stigma. Oh, you're in therapy. You know, you don't want to, even if you, it's not associated with addiction at all. But it's like, well, I don't need therapy. You know, <laughs> what do you think I need therapy? You know, there's, there is a stigma. Yes, there is, unfortunately. And there's a huge movement out there to destigmatize mental health. And actually, going to rehab, going to rehab for alcohol and drugs, is has much less of a stigma around it today than it used to. But going for mental health of any other kind has a greater stigma around it, which is really sad to me because it prevents so many people who could use the therapy, who could have a better life. And like Pia Melody says, you got to get your history straight, or else the history dictates your life instead of you living the life that you really want to live. Why wouldn't somebody want to live a beautiful life from having a little bit of therapy? Well, and not be in so much pain. I mean, there's been a rash of suicides. Rash. I mean, two famous people have committed suicide in the past month. Well, and in the last five years, there have been a lot of people like Robin Williams, people that we were, like, shocked. But those are just the people we hear about. Right. I mean, there's like, uh, you know... Well, there's a woman in our own community that committed suicide. Yes, yes, just recently, this this year. Right. Yes, yeah. And so, and I believe that those are preventable. Absolutely preventable. Uh, There were many times when I felt so depressed that I seriously thought about taking my own life. Been there. And so, you know, I didn't know what to do. And finally, I just, you know, fell to my knees and said, God, please help me. I don't know what the hell to do here. So let's do something. And so I opened up the phone book and looked for a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. It was so, amazing. So let's say we, we're talking to somebody that's brand new, that just, you know, is initiating themselves into some type of recovery, whether it's AA, DA, SLAA, OA. What would be your recommendation if, they, if they're listening to us and they go like, maybe I do need a therapist, so then what? So, you know, if if money is an issue, there are a lot of places in town that will do a reduced fee or what we call a sliding scale. And so if you just want to put your toe in the water and see what it's like, maybe try something really cheap so you feel like you didn't um, completely waste lots of money. Because there are some really good therapists out there, and there are some that are not very good at all, and then there's a mediocre therapist. Well, guess who the majority is? The mediocre therapist. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, there are not very many really bad therapists because they end up getting in trouble and getting their license revoked. I have worked with a few people who are trying to regain their license as a supervisor for other therapists. But, um, you know, just try it. And if you don't like the first person you see, for shop. For Pete's sake. Shop around. Go find another therapist and find somebody that you feel comfortable with. If you have insurance, definitely do that first and just learn what it is that you like, what you want in therapy. And the most important piece is addiction is the tip of the iceberg. So what Pia Melody says is, you know, we come out of childhood, most of us, with at least a little bit of PTSD from the things that happened to us. And our parents are not bad people. They're just giving us or doing for us what they learned from their parents who had less to offer than our parents had. And the next generation, thank goodness, has a lot of tools. They have a lot of information. The Internet is filled with information. But you want to be careful about what you find on the Internet. Because uh, it's not like, uh, you know, whatever the doctor says is the gospel. That's not true. There's a lot of false information out there on the Internet. So ask people who have a therapist, who like their therapist, and find out what it is that they like about their therapist. And then uh, make a, a list of questions that you want to ask your therapist. Oh, that's a really good point. Ask them, you know. What should be on there? Like what? So, so where'd you get your degree? How many years have you been practicing? Um, uh, and it's okay to ask your therapist. Sometimes they'll tell you. Sometimes they won't. Are you in recovery? If you're in a 12-step program, 
Sometimes you really want a therapist who's in 12-step recovery, and sometimes you don't. Yeah, Patrick was. Patrick was. And he was the one that really recommended me to go to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Yeah. He was in Sex Addicts Anonymous, and he worked in the Mankind Project. But as Mm -hmm. we got into my therapy, he was like, you might want to go check that out. And I heard... I said, oh, no, I've heard, like, that's a really, like, tough, real program. I don't know if I want to go do that. (laughs) So, but you're right. That was an important piece of it. Go ahead. And, you know, sometimes uh, if you're having issues within your 12-step fellowship, which does happen, you might want to go to a therapist that's not in 12-step program. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. figure out what you want. So do you want somebody who's real clinical and very sterile? That may be what you want, and that's okay. So, you know, just notice their demeanor. Are are they more like a, a physician in how they approach you? Are they more like, you know, a sponsor might approach you <clears throat> in 12-step recovery or somewhere in between? You know, therapists cannot be sponsors. That is not their focus, and that's mm. not what they're credentialed mm. to mm. do. Now, there's a, another uh, credential out there, just by the way. It's called a recovery coach, which is the gap between a therapist and a sponsor. So they um, can't do, they can't be a sponsor. Recovery coach or what they call a peer support specialist uh, is somewhere in between a therapist and, and a, a sponsor. And what they do is they help you with work in the program. They help you with what's called harm reduction. In 12-step programs, harm reduction is not popular. It means that if you're injecting heroin three times a day, maybe harm reduction would be injecting heroin only once a day and then maybe once a week. But their focus is not getting you uh, completely healthy mentally. And they do, they may give you some uh, resources or some referrals, but their job is not mental health. It's primarily to help you work a program. So let me just, because I want to clarify that. So yes. a sponsor, and if you don't know what a sponsor is, a sponsor is someone that actually helps you through, they are working the same program that you are working. So if it's um, SLAA or Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous or AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous or OA, Overeaters Anonymous, you would go to a series of meetings and find somebody that you feel could help you through the steps. So that's just a peer in the program. And then the recovery coach is someone who like uh, is bridges the gap between the the program and therapy. Yes. And absolutely. how do you find them? Well, you know, this is new, right? Yes, I've never heard of it's this. Brand new. It's, uh, they're scarce right now. However, the uh, U.S. government and the state of Texas um, are pushing for that because we believe that we can reduce the number of deaths uh, by you know the accidental overdose deaths mm. that we're seeing mm. and so what they would do is say to you you know you, if you don't have a sponsor you need to go get one if you have a sponsor and you haven't talked to them go talk to your sponsor they also help with making sure that you get um peer support like a support group <clears throat> yeah yeah they, they kind of teach you then how to like do that right this is cool I like now this. it's not just for addiction the really interesting part is that it's for mental health as well there's such a stigma around mental health that we have people call peer support specialists. And the state of Texas actually uh, credentials them, and they have to go through a training. Uh, there's training at the uh, Houston Council on Recovery. Mm, mm, mm. <coughs> Are they, they only in Texas, Ava? No, they're in a number of states. I'm not sure how many different states, but there are programs in Texas where the recovery coach or what they call the peer support specialist will uh, be paid by the state and they'll have a, a long list of clients that they serve. Well, I think I need to check into that for my new career. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And guess how you get there? <clears throat> if you're either an Al-Anon or AA, you can be a peer support specialist for Al-Anon or AA. If you understand at least a little bit about 12-step programs and addiction, then you can uh, go get the training and there's it's two weekends um, I think it's two weekends. Anyway, it's about uh, three days twice during a month. And they do those at the uh, Houston Council on Recovery. Uh, and it's not a whole lot of money. It may be like $100, $200. I can't remember. It's a minimal fee. And then if you can find a place that's funded by the state of Texas, you can actually go to work with them and get paid to do this. So... Uh, it's something that we've needed because some people are just too afraid to go to a 12-step right. meeting 
For example, somebody who has social anxiety and they need to get sober from drugs and alcohol or they need at least some harm reduction from alcohol. Yeah, they're in a pickle. Right, right, so, right. you know, I've had a lot of people that have been referred to me from alcohol and drug programs and they tell me they're not going to go to a 12-step program and I'll yeah. talk with them and find out, well, gee, they've got social anxiety and it's so severe that they can't even get their, themselves into the door. And sometimes I have actually met them at the door of the meeting and helped them walk in the door. But still, they're under-diagnosed because there's such a stigma around mental health. And if you have an addiction, there's already some onboard guilt and shame about that. And then when they, they are told to go to meetings, they want to go, but they cannot get themselves in the door. It's too sure. terrifying. Sure. And so um, a recovery coach or a peer support specialist who understands both a mental health diagnosis and addiction as well can help them actually get into the meeting place. So re- peer support specialist, uh, recovery coaches in particular, can go with the person to the nice. meeting. They can actually nice. do that, which is something that therapists really aren't supposed right. to do. Right, yeah. sure, sure, sure. ethical well, concern. I know that, that there's uh, that 7 p.m. meeting over at the Lovett Center, and I think that there's a woman that brings these young girls mm-hmm. there, so I'm mm-hmm. thinking she might be a recovery coach or a peer support type person. Possibly, yeah. The uh, place in town called Santa Maria Hostel. Mm-hmm. So that one is for uh, women only. And also there's a component, a program that's a part of that that's for women and children. And so mm-hmm. they help them get to meetings when they would normally not be able to go because they can also have uh, babysitting and they can bring their children to actually right, live right, in right, right. Uh, what we call transitional living or sober living. So they uh, have access to a recovery coach. And most of the new sober living places that are coming up in Houston have recovery coaches. There are a number of them that already have recovery coaches in place. I know at least three of them right now, and there may be four or five. Very cool. Yeah. So let's talk about, like, you know, um, what I could expect from, you know, her and I have both experienced you know, extensive therapy through in our working through our addiction, working different programs. Mm-hmm. But let's let's talk to somebody who hasn't. You know, what can you expect from therapy? So, um, a good therapist is going to do a thorough assessment, and there are therapists who will just you know let you come in and talk, and they uh, will maybe give you advice, but haven't done a, a thorough assessment. There needs to. But be- isn't that doesn't that help? You know, they call it the talking cure. You know, doesn't it, does. it does relieve people? It does. So even a mediocre therapist can be effective? I mean... Absolutely. Even a mediocre therapist can be very effective. Do you know what the number one uh, outcome predictor is for therapy? The rapport between the therapist and the client. Wow. If they can develop that rapport, they can definitely uh, help the client. And so, yeah, that's a really important piece. Um, and But, for example, um, I have uh, a client in treatment right now that was misdiagnosed in a number of different ways because there wasn't a clear assessment done. For example, this um, person has um, an attachment disorder. When uh, we're born, we have a certain number of neurons and connections, neural pathways in the brain, and those little pathways in our infant brains are waiting for external stimulation to cause them to fire. I didn't understand that for a long time, but I love neuroscience and I've been studying a ton of neuroscience in the last 10 years. I just love the geekiness of this. (laughs) No, but that's true. And if you don't get it, no, I mean, I'm relating totally, you know, I'm, I'm understanding this, you know, so I'm lacking in some of that, you know, firing going on or <laughs> looking for that, you know, attachment. I know that. And, and so there's uh, 500 billion neurons in the brain when we're born, and then there's one quadrillion, what they call connections or synapses, where one neuron or nerve uh, attaches to another one. And so they create these things called neural pathways in our brain. And so when those neural pathways fire, so it's an electrical signal, and then when it hops from 
one nerve to the next, there's a gap in between. And they call that the synaptic junction. And when the nerve signal is coming electrically and it gets to the next nerve, it can't cross the gap electrically. It has to cross with a chemical. And so if there's not enough chemicals, for example, if you're depressed, you don't have enough serotonin in that gap. And so if if there's not enough good neurochemistry in there, the signal goes very slowly and so not only when people are depressed do they feel down they also have trouble thinking yeah processing information feeling they feel very fatigued Uh, they get confused easily they are very forgetful all of those things that are you know we would think about as something other than a neurochemistry problem those are all issues that are part of the neurochemistry of the brain but for this individual that didn't get that uh, at the beginning uh, of life, because my bachelor's is in psychology, and I remember that there was a study done of these like Russian orphans. Yes. These babies were just warehoused. Right. And they said that if there is not this connection or this nurturing or this interaction that's primed right. at birth or, you know, the first, you know, year of life. I like it, the word prime because it's sitting there yes. ready to go. Right. But they have to have the eye stimulation. They have to hear things, so see things. So eye contact, eye loving, contact, physical, loving, yes, loving touch, what we call words. proprioception. So they feel something on their skin like being held. If those neurons are not stimulated, those synaptic junctions and neural pathways are not stimulated, then what happens at a certain age, the brain will eliminate the brain prunes off half of the the synaptic junctions that are present or the synapses by the age of about 11 or 12. So if you don't lose it, you don't use it, you lose it. Yep, crazy teenagers. Absolutely. And I cannot say that enough. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. So if a child is between birth and 12 months old, not given the stimulation required for them to make it to 12 months, the mortality rate is 75% in those very Russian orphanages that you're talking about. So the brain just says, well, we don't need any of these neurons and it lets go of all of them. So the neurons that are even necessary for life support will get pruned off. So in the brain, the first part that develops is a reptilian brain, which is part of the the, um, spinal cord, and then the top of the spinal cord, which we call the midbrain, and then the limbic system, which is the next uh, youngest part of the brain. It's only about 25 million years old. Now, the cortex that's on the top of our brain is only about 100 to 500,000 years old. In the scheme of things, it's just a speck on the anthropological timeline. So it's interesting how much we don't know about our own brains. But if those uh, external stimuli do not occur, for example, hearing the sound of their mother's voice, the sound of familiar people. At birth, an infant can recognize the sound of their mother's voice. If they are separated from their mother, 30, 40 years later, they will still recognize the sound of their mother's voice, even though they've never met that person and being able to say that is who I was born to. So uh, I want to talk about this one particular case. It's extraordinarily powerful. So this person was um, definitely stimulated appropriately uh, for the first, let's say, 12 years of her life. Then when she became a teenager, she was basically taken out of public school, taken out of any kind of school. She was... um, put in between her parents, so to speak, like a sandwich, and she's had relatively no peer support. So she appears to be autistic. That's right, autistic. She's not. What's happened is she hasn't had the peer um, information coming in, the peer stimulation. So sounds, sights, touch, holding hands, all that kind of stuff. And so when... Laughing, vocabulary. All of that, all of that. So she's almost, at times, she appears to be mute. But uh, she's not. She is someone who just did not get the appropriate stimulation. So, for example, from birth to 12 months old, what do you need? 
Well, you need the the feel of uh, the nipple in your mouth. You need the smell of mommy. You need to see mommy's face. You need to hear mommy talking to you. And you need that proprioception or the feeling on your skin of mommy's touch from birth to 12 months old. Well, what do you need when you become a teenager? You need the, at that point, we're trying to develop some autonomy, some independence. We're trying to learn who am I? What is, what do I like? What do I want to do in the world? What do I want to be when I grow up? And without that peer stimulation and interaction, then the forward motion of language development, social skills, things like that, uh, are missing. And so it takes about 90 days for a new neural pathway to form. So if there's nothing for four years, then those neural pathways are are not forming. So in order for a child to really launch from the home that they are born into, they need different kinds of stimulation at different ages. So we've talked about birth to 12, uh, 12 months, but what about 12 months to, let's say, three or four years old? What kind of stimulation do they need? They need to learn what it feels like to stand up, to begin forming language, to be able to use their mouth and tongue to form the words they hear their parents say to them. And then, you know, there's another stage in there where they need to learn how to do eye-hand coordination, things like that. And then, as an adolescent, they're trying to become their own person, not be who their parents would like them to be. And, you know, a lot of parents want the child to form their reality around their own self around the parents self and their identity and when uh, that happens that child is not allowed to branch out and think in new paradigms and so by the time we're about 12 years old 11 12 years old we have what's called our own working model of the world and uh, Bruce Perry who has the child trauma network here in Houston is a psychiatrist who works a lot with children and he looks at you know what is it when a child's not developing properly? What is it that they're missing? What kind of stimuli are they missing? And so uh, he had one case where a little girl was extremely thin, and they gave her a specific number of calories a day, and she was not gaining weight. Any other child would have gained weight at that point. And so he said, well, try this. I want you to sit her in your lap, even though she was about 11 years old. She wasn't really the age where you sit a child in your lap. They did not change her diet. The calories were exactly the same. And three months later, you have a chubby little girl. She gained weight. She gained weight. She was not receiving the uh, basic stuff that she needed from birth. She was in the foster system, of course. And so we know that external stimuli, whether it's touch, sound, sight, you know, things that we smell, things that we feel, all of that is essential for our brains to develop appropriately. It's amazing to me how much that uh, external stimuli changes whether or not we're actually going to grow up and have a normal brain. And it actually could affect, we're not for sure, but we're pretty sure that it also affects IQ. The, mm. the stimuli that a child has in their environment is essential to them being able to think appropriately, to think outside the box. So let's, let's you know, it makes me think generally, and these are a couple of extreme cases you're talking about. Right. Neither one of us really experienced that extreme. Right. So what, what is it like, you know, therapeutically that, or psychologically that caused the addiction in us, you know, just generally, you know, I know that we're two right. different people, but what is it as far as what you're talking about lacking you know, that that initial, you know, love or nurturing that causes the tendency to... Right, like I'm really fast. ...lapse on to food right. or Whatever. alcohol or a relationship mm-hmm. and, in an unhealthy way. Because I feel like, you know, there's a it's a spiritual component that, Absolutely. that I, you know, didn't have like this connection to, you know, my higher power when I was a young person and I didn't know how to cope or, right. you know, I didn't have tactics or strategies or any understanding of you know, what I was missing, but I knew that there was lack there. And so I know that when I started acting out, which was, you know, as a young teenager and it was sexually, that I got, I got a lot of 
brain benefit, you know. I got flooding, flooding of all these, you know, brain chemicals you talk about. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah. So if you think about the just the part of the brain where we're talking about the neural pathways forming or not, because 50% of them get pruned off by the age of about 11 or 12. So 11 or 12, you're down to the amount of synapses and neural pathways you're going to have for the rest of your life. So what didn't you get? We don't have the ability to look in a child's brain and say, well, that was missing or this was missing right. or this neural neural pathway is not completely formed. However, if you think about how the brain forms, it forms beginning with the oldest parts of the brain. Reptilian brain, 500 million years old. The limbic brain, more like 25 million years old. And then the cortex, which is the top part of our brain, uh, about 100,000, 500 to 500,000 years old. And then this front part that we call the prefrontal cortex, that developed probably around 100,000 years ago the same one that we have in our brains. So if that is in the process of forming from birth to 18 years old, and we also know that the brain continues to form between 18 and 26, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But if the limbic system, which is where we have learning, memory, that's where addiction lies, it's where uh, uh, memory is, and it's where um, we make decisions based on a feeling. And so if that's uh, the next part of the brain that develops in uh, later childhood and like how before. old? So between, um, I would say, 8 and about 14, uh-huh. the limbic system is becoming fully formed. But then it does something uh, that we call myelination. And so the limbic system is fully formed in adolescence. Uh, the cortex is still a work in progress. And so the front part of the brain that says, even though limbic system, you're 25 million years old and I'm only 100,000 years old, I can still override I'm taking your over. instinct. Mm-hmm. Your instinct. And so teenagers are working primarily on the the information that comes out of the limbic system that says that felt really Feel good. good. Let's Feel eat good. another yeah. gallon of ice yeah, cream. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Uh, let's go out and flirt with some guy yeah. or some girl because, boy. Attention, attention, ooh, yeah. When they pay attention to me, I feel really, really good. Mm-hmm. So what's going on in the limbic system is there's a part of the limbic system called the ventral tegmental area, and there's another part called the nucleus accumbens. The ventral tegmental area is where dopamine, which is our motivator, our driver, sends out a chemical message to the nucleus accumbens. It sends dopamine from the VTA, I'll use VTA for short, to the NA or the nucleus accumbens. Dopamine is what makes you get up off the couch and go to work because you know there's going to be a reward at some point, a financial reward. And it says, I really like my job and I really like what I do and I like having a paycheck and putting a, a roof over my head. So it gives that dopamine signal from the VTA to the NA. The nucleus accumbens responds with endorphins, which is another feel-good chemical. So there's a loop, a feedback loop that's going on in there, round and round. Now, when the ventral tegmental area sends dopamine to the nucleus accumbens, it also sends dopamine to the prefrontal cortex. And so inside the prefrontal cortex, there are dopamine receptors. In the nucleus accumbens, there are dopamine receptors. And if I find something that makes me feel really good, in other words, a super, super stimulus, that super stimulus says, this is really good, this is fun, and we're going to do that. I don't care who we have to kill or cheat and lie and steal for to get that response again. But it doesn't matter if it's sugar, gambling, dealing drugs, because some people get addicted to dealing Just drugs. Just yeah. Just that high. Or those people who become valedictorian of their class because it feels so good to, to get succeed. the attention mm-hmm. from their peers and from their teachers to be able to have enough dopamine in their brain to succeed. All right, so I want to like just ungeek this for a minute. All right. So <laughs> somewhere along the line, the infant was missing something, and it could be vast, it could be extreme, or it could be minor. Right. <clears throat> Develops into the adolescent. The adolescent begins trying different things. Whoa, that feels really good. Mm-hmm. I'm missing this thing from, I'm missing some nurturing. 
and I'm going to fill it with this whatever this is that feels good. And it feels so good that the rush of dopamine and endorphins is like, I'm going to do whatever I can to keep going. Thus, the addiction is born. Right. So it's like a chemical cocktail in the brain. Right. And we don't realize that it's the sugar or the alcohol or the cute guy or the having sex. We don't realize what it is that's going on in our brain. We just know that that stimulus made me feel wonderful, euphoric, better than I've ever felt in my entire life. And if I feel like I don't matter at my house, then or what I think, what I want doesn't matter, then I'm going to try a whole lot of different things until I find the one that gives me the biggest hit. So let me talk about that drive because I remember early on in my recovery, I went to a um, a seminar taught by Kara Weed, a local therapist here in Houston, and she said sex and love addiction is a disease of not mattering. And so that, you know, and I sat up because that was me growing up. I'm a middle child. I always felt like I was invisible. I didn't matter. And so how prevalent is that feeling in a teenager that I don't matter? Well, unfortunately, it happens a lot, even in some of the kids. Like When I was in high school, I saw these kids that seemed to have a great life. And at home, I was with two alcoholics who were knuck and futs. And I thought, well, how do... How do these kids feel? They must feel wonderful because they've got all these toys and they've got cars and they've got parents. Yeah, they don't have this sense of not mattering like I do. Well, since then, I've talked to some of those kids. Yeah, they do. And they were having the same thing. Well, is that that a normal part of development? You know, that what you're talking about is that, you know, as Figuring out that you don't matter. Figuring out that you don't matter. And then finding out how to matter. Right. Perhaps. Right. Well, let's think about it. So the prefrontal cortex is where we have images where we can say 2 plus 2 equals 4 and know what the heck that means. Mm -hmm. The limbic system doesn't work like that. It works like I don't feel good and I want to feel better. And it's not even the words. It's just I feel bad. And it may not even be... Mm-hmm. I feel it's, it's just, just a bad. sensation. Just yeah. It's a sensation. And I'm going to search around until I figure out what feels better. Mm-hmm. So since our body requires physical nurturing, guess what happens to the kid who's left alone in the crib? Right. They start to feel their own body. And eventually they find their genital area. And so they feel how good that feels. They're going to still get a dopamine hit. I don't care if they're six months old. Mm -hmm. Everything works when we're born. Those Mm -hmm. sensations we can feel, and it feels really good. So if I don't have an emotional connection with a parent, and I'm noticing that, ooh, it feels good when I touch myself down there, I'm going to keep doing that to try to make myself feel better. So bad when I don't touch it, good mm, when I do touch it. And so for that kid, the way to feel better is to touch the genital area. And That's eventually they're going to touch it to the point where they may even cause physical harm. I call right. it rug rash, basically. Right, 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 right. And so this kid has no idea when they grow up that physical nurturing and emotional connection can go together. And so you have a kid that grows up with what we call the love avoidant or the love anorexic or emotional anorexic, emotional avoidant, that emotional information and attunement are not sought out because it's unfamiliar, number one. Two, I don't know how to do it when I'm an adult. And three, it doesn't work nearly as well as sex. Sure. And since since this emotional attunement thing that I was supposed to get as a child and didn't get, for example, the 75% who died from lack of emotional attunement with their parents, the 25%, <coughs> excuse me, the 25% who didn't get any emotional attunement from their parents will use sex and some other substance to try to get a little bit more dopamine. Well, I can remember that I knew that sex and love addiction was my primary addiction when I was sitting at my office at work and I could go into euphoric recall about the situation that happened the previous night and I could get high. I didn't need to go to the bar. I didn't need to have a drink. I didn't need to do anything. I could just sit and with my own thoughts, not even any physical stimulation, just with my own thoughts I could get Mm -hmm. high. 
So, you know, I'm just so fascinated by your research and your understanding of brain chemistry, but now I want to shift and talk a little bit about PM Melody because I know that, you know, with your understanding of the brain chemistry and the, and, and the addiction model, um, how do you use PM Melody's work in your treatment? Because I think that's so important. Right. So we've been talking about a lot of extreme cases. Well, what about the case where, you know, the um, kid was a latchkey kid, came home, there were a couple of hours, he was by himself, and then finally mom comes home and she's getting dinner ready, she's getting all the kids to bed, and there really isn't much one-on-one time. So this kid has abandonment issues from the time they get home from school until mom comes home. And mom's presence feels like a wash of dopamine. It feels so good when mom comes home because they're not alone anymore. But then mom's pretty busy, so there's uh, not a whole lot of emotional attunement going on there. So that would be, uh, and that's the case for a lot of adults right now that grew up as latchkey kids. And so uh, maybe mom tries to overcompensate. Maybe mom says, okay, little boy, you can come sleep in bed with me because I haven't seen you all day. And so the kid ends up being 10, 11 years old, still sleeping in mom's bed. Mm -hmm. So there's both abandonment and what we call enmeshment trauma. Mm -hmm. So Pia talks a lot about abandonment and enmeshment trauma. And enmeshment trauma is a new phenomenon for me. I didn't understand enmeshment trauma until I started looking at the number of men that we treat here that have sex addiction who have been enmeshed by their mothers. And so it's a subtle form of trauma that occurs. And I don't even like to use the word abuse anymore. It's a trauma that occurs. Now, is mom intentionally enmeshing with this child and causing trauma? No, not at all. Mom is trying to figure out how can I make up for the hours and hours that I don't get to see my son or my daughter. It could be her daughter. So it's a case of like mom, uh, the daughter becoming mom's best friend. You know, children need to have a best friend their own right, age. Right, that's not your best friend, that's your daughter. Right. Yeah. And moms need to have a best friend who's an adult. Right. Because right. they need to have adult conversations. But when mom or dad, and dad can be enmeshing as, as well in a very subtle way, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So when the parent is accidentally enmeshing with the child and causing enmeshment trauma, there's a whole other set of issues. And we're starting to understand more about that. There's a great book by Ken Adams called When He's Married to Mom. And we do uh, some treatment around here that is what we call the MEM, Mother Enmeshed Men. Most of our candidates who are sex addicts also have mother enmeshment the opposite end of the neglect trauma. But in enmeshment trauma, there's more to it than just that piece. That would be what we call uh, emotional and or what we call emotional sexual enmeshment trauma. So what if mom and dad are harming the child? For example, they are beating them with a belt. So it could be a real subtle form. Maybe it happened once, but it still also causes enmeshment trauma. If you can think of enmeshment trauma as boundary violation. So I have a right to my body. I have a right to what I think. I have a right to what I feel. And I have a right to decide how information coming in becomes a thought or a concept. How I interpret things from outside. If a parent is physically enmeshing with a child. In other words, doing uh, discipline in a way that is enmeshing. For example, a child has a right to not have their pants removed when they're going to be disciplined. And what Pia Melody says is appropriate physical punishment is covered bottom, open hand, swat, swat. Just a tiny swat gets their attention. And after a certain age, children don't need to be physically It's not going to do anything. Won't go any any good. So that's another form of enmeshment trauma. And in a way, if you think about a child having their bottom uncovered, it can also feel like a sexual trauma, even though there's no intention there by the parent to cause sexual trauma. So anytime a child's physical body is invaded, let's say you have a child born with diabetes, 
that kid's going to have a lot of injections. They're going to have a lot of, of hospital visits. They're going to have, have feel like they don't have control of their own body. They don't have a right to have their own body. Anything that does that, that invades their body, is a physical enmeshment trauma. Uh, if they're uh, taught in a way that we might con- consider cultish, so you have to think this way, you have to think this way, you can't think outside of this box, that's an intellectual enmeshment trauma. Or sexual trauma, you don't get to have a door on your bedroom. That's a form of physical and emotional and sexual violation trauma for the child. And then spiritual enmeshment trauma. Uh, Any kind of abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, or any other uh, form of enmeshment trauma from clergy. There's a lot of that going on these days. It's been going on for a long time, but we're just starting to find out about it. So a child that feels like they can't have their own thoughts, they can't be who they are, they can't think the way they want to think, believe the way they want to believe, or if mom doesn't allow a child to express their feelings. For example, you can't be happy in this house. I'm not happy, so nobody else can be happy. (laughs) Yeah, or for my mom, I could never express anger. She would say, you better get down off your high horse. Right. You know, she would shut that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I would got, internalize that rage. Yeah. Well, guess what happens with that? Depression. So when we internalize uh, anger, we're going to end up with some serious depression. And it makes it difficult for a child to ever appropriately express their anger. Okay, so we obviously, <laughs> we're going to have to come back and do this again because we're like opening a whole new thing. But. Let's say, you know, I'm an adult, I'm, I'm new in recovery, and how do I know if I need a therapist? What is it that shows up that will tell me, like, I, I need to, to further this recovery process and get some help? So the, the five basic symptoms of what we call childhood relational trauma, other people call it codependence, but this is how uh, Pia Melody explains it. Uh, when a child is born, they're valuable, vulnerable, perfectly imperfect, completely dependent on their parents for all their needs and completely spontaneous. They know who they are, they express themselves very well. So when a child's value is diminished or they're falsely empowered by saying, well, we're the Joneses and so we're better than everybody. If they are not taught how to protect themselves, if they're really vulnerable as you know an older child because they haven't been taught, so the, it, that would show right. up as fragility, like it just can't right. handle anything. Okay. Now the other end of that, which is would be me, is the person who is walled off, mm-hmm. can't really feel external, and this comes from enmeshment trauma. Can't really feel when other people say they love you. Can't feel that. Uh huh. Can't take it. And okay. so I also they can't express their own emotions or express themselves very well because they have an emotional wall mm-hmm. and you know people will say well, why can't you share yourself with me why can't you be vulnerable mm-hmm. with me they don't really know but that's how why right. okay and then and, and the perfect and the uh, reality piece is our reality is made up of what we look like including what we think our character looks like what we think and believe what we feel and our behavior so nobody else can make that up for us but if we're not allowed to have our own reality as children, we're going to grow up to not know what our reality is. And if someone says, oh, you're blue, then I'm going to join the blue club because I don't realize I can be whoever I am, whatever color I am. So what? And if I have a hard time meeting my own needs, if I mm -hmm. don't do well with my own self-care, and if I have trouble expressing myself in moderation, for example, my mother expressed herself with throwing things. That's a little bit out of balance, you think? You think? Yeah, mine did too. Or if mom is like a wooden statue and she's this perfect little mm-hmm. china doll yeah, yeah, that yeah. walks around town. Yeah. So those are the core symptoms. So not believing okay, so I yeah, have value. value. I don't have value or I'm more valuable than everybody else. And we have a few politicians. So it's on the extreme. Yes, right, yes, on yes, the yes, extremes. Okay. Vulnerable, either completely walled off or so vulnerable, Uh I take on what everybody else tells me is my reality. Uh, I don't know what my reality is. Um, I can't do good self-care. Maybe I'm needless wantless. Mm -hmm. I don't even know I need to go to the dentist or I don't even know I need emotional support. 
uh, or I'm real needy and I want everybody else to make me feel mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Or I am either too walled up, too uh, non-spontaneous or too contained or, too or completely out of containment. So, and can, it, can you just be one? Can one of those just show up or will they all five show up together? So you can have a little bit of all of them mm-hmm. or maybe just one is out of whack. Yeah. But okay. each one of those parts of the self affect the other parts of the self. Right. And so anything that's way out in the extremes and, you know, maybe feeling emotions in the extremes. I know I certainly felt emotions in the extremes in early recovery. So those are the kinds of things that we work on using the PMLD method. And so the first thing we do is figure out what happened. You know, we uh, we educate a lot on what is enmeshment trauma, what is abandonment trauma, and did I experience any of those things? And if I did, was it in the extremes or was it a tiny bit what we call little t trauma? But it happened every day of my life. Right, sure, sure. Turns yeah. out to be a giant, a right, big right, yeah. trauma. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. what we do is we start, and and there's also attachment issues that are involved in that. That's a whole nother podcast, I'm sure, about attachment <laughs> issues. Yeah. Um, done a lot of uh, investigation and reading on attachment issues. There's a great book called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder by Philip Flores. Oh, Wonderful. Wow. He's a genius. Wow. I've never heard of that. So, uh, yes. Yeah. So, if you're listening and you, you know, think you might have, I know that mine showed up totally um, in a lot of different ways diminished value my vulnerability was out of react out of whack and my dependency needs you know I was not meeting I was looking for everybody outside of me to give me value rather than seeing the value inside of myself we call that other esteem if I'm trying to get other esteem my self esteem is going to just be crazy out of whack way up way down and Pia talks about the inherent worth that we have that's given to us by our higher power the instant we're born and that inherent worth is infinite but we lose touch with that inherent infinite worth because we all have those, all of these traumas right, happen to us. All of those things that we And so we get we disconnected from ourselves. We feel like there's emptiness inside, especially for avoidance. It feels like there's a tremendous amount of uh, nothing inside mm-hmm. of us. And the one thing I hear them say the most is I feel bored. Oh, if, wow. that's, if that's something you experience a lot, that's comes from the love avoidant wow. because we have this big wall so nothing from the outside can get in that emotional energy that we require not that it's fun to have but that we require to have a stable mood doesn't get through our walls so this has been so fascinating <laughs> so I, I do I hope we can come back yes do it again absolutely and um, maybe go into another direction maybe just you know explore one aspect of it um, was there anything you wanted to add? Uh, I'm just like, just really kind of sitting with all this. I realize I need to read more. I feel like <laughs> I need to get Patrick Carnes work. I need to get all these other books. And so um, it's like, it's really fascinating to me that there have been all these people who have really sat down and decided, I want to think about this. And what I love about you, Ava, is that you sat down and you said, I want to think about this. I want to learn about this. And then I want to help these other people out there in the world to heal this. And so I'm so grateful to you. I just have to get really emotional right now because, you know, you've dedicated your life to helping other people, you know, heal themselves. And I suspect that part of it is because every time you help someone that you heal a piece of that yourself. Right. That's very true. Definitely. Definitely. So thank you so much. I want to thank you too. And if you are listening, this is Silver Sisters Talk. We do have a website at SilverSistersTalk.com. If any of this resonated with you and you want to get in touch with Ava, you can email us at SilverSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you want to reach out to us, if you have a question, um, please just just email us and reach out to us and keep listening. Um, We're here to bring you our recovery, to take it out into the world and uh, practice what it is that you learn in the rooms. Thank you so much, Ava. Thank you. You're welcome. All right.